and welcome to the podcast Paper Trail Pro. In our previous podcast we examined how the state's police helped create the myth of the orange pimpernel. In this podcast we examined the early career of another British soldier and loyalist paramilitary who was active at the same time and then throughout the rest of the conflict. When the murky history of the Troubles is written, Brian Nelson's name is assured of a place. His name has become synonymous with the word collusion and he was a double agent run by British military intelligence at the heart of loyalist paramilitarism and at the cutting edge of Britain's clandestine war against Republicans and the Irish community, although civilians were the main victims by far. Despite various investigations by Sir John Stevens and Judge Corey, innumerable court cases and of course the report of the Patrick Finucan review by Sir Desmond de Silva, we have still learned comparatively little of Brian Nelson's career in either the Ulster Defence Association or the British Army. So many questions remain unanswered, not that any process had encouraged independent, transparent questioning was facilitated by the British state who ran him. Nelson's backstory that we have learned from official sources is patchy, to say the least. In the most recent British review regarding its agent, which British Prime Minister David Cameron had the cheek to tell British Parliament was an independent review of the evidence, De Silva, a highly respected member of the British elite, had this to say. Brian Nelson was born and brought up in the Shankill area of Belfast. He left school at 15 and joined the Royal Navy. Later he joined the Territorial Army. In October 1965, when he was 17, he signed up with the regular army, serving with the 1st Battalion Black Watch in Germany and Cyprus. He was medically discharged in early 1970. After returning to Belfast, he joined the UDA in 1972. De Silva says that Nelson volunteered his services to the British Army in 1984, and they tasked Nelson with rejoining the UDA. David Cameron told British Parliament that, that Sir Desmond had a full and unrestricted access to the Lord Stevens archive and to all government papers, and that his report was, quote, the fullest possible account of the murder of Patrick Finucane and the truth about state collusion. The Finucane family called it a sham, although if anything it strengthened their already unassailable case for a public inquiry. What is indeed symbolic is that files uncovered by a family member of one of Brian Nelson's victims fill in huge gaps in this official military career in the British Army and his first conviction for serious crime. Nelson, whose British Army number was 2403542, was very far from the model soldier when he was serving in the ranks of the Black Watch. His military records display a litany of military misdemeanours, including the serious absent without leave, and criminality. During his short four-year military service, he had been fined many times and had served 128 days in military detention, more than 8% of his overall service. What is most interesting though is that we learn of the reason for his final discharge. It was not due to his poor service history or that he went AWOL, as has been thought. The reason for his discharge has serious ramifications for the De Silva report and culpability and litigation that is being brought before the court against the British state. Brian Nelson's military file records that he was discharged from the British Army as he was mentally unstable. The medical assessments on the individual military records of British soldiers also record mental capacity, M, and mental stability, S. Nelson was assessed as mentally unstable in his last two assessments, November 69 and December 69, with a recommendation of HOUK or Home Only UK service. 
In other words, he was to have no overseas or combat posting. His final assessment on 9th of December 1969 marks a decline from a very serious 7 to an 8, whereby 8 is the gravest grading in that category. So Brian Nelson was considered to be mentally unstable as early as late 1969 before being discharged weeks later. The relevant section for this discharge on 18th of February 1970 is noted as consequence of paragraph 503 serial 4 subsection 3 QR61 and this is what the relevant section of the Queen's Regulation 1961 says. Ceasing to fulfil army medical requirements that is permanently medically unfit for any form of army service. Nelson's run out or option dates though show that he was maintained on reserve meaning he could be called up in the event of emergency until his contract for service was waived on 3rd of October 1974. By this time Nelson was in jail after he tortured registered blind man Gerald Higgins on 25th of March 1973. He was found guilty of being armed with intent among other lesser charges rather than more serious crimes for which he was blatantly culpable. Higgins was kidnapped, beaten, burned and electrocuted by Nelson and a gang of others in a UDA torture room called the Romper Room in Belfast Parlance before being led outside to a waiting car. As they drove off though a mobile British Army unit intercepted the car that was taking Higgins to his death. As there is a definite paper trail for a detailed assessment of Nelson's mental instability, we asked the British Ministry of Defence to confirm that he had been assessed by a psychiatrist and then reassessed when recruited as an agent. We also asked for the FMED 19 report which followed from his grade 8 mentally unstable classification. The MOD has refused these Freedom of Information requests, even though it was made obvious the reason why we sought them and the importance of them to campaigning families. Nevertheless, other significant archive finds raise serious questions regarding Nelson's status, his arrest and his trial in the early 70s. A mobile patrol of the Coldstream Guards had collared Nelson with two others, one of whom was Nelson's brother-in-law. Instead of being passed to the Royal Ulster Constabulary, the RUC, police, for interrogation though, British military intelligence interviewed the three UDA men first. A Royal Military Police archive we access shows that they took custody of the three UDA men after the interviews and then handed them over to the RUC. The Royal Military Police files record that there was a reason for delay in the criminal arrest procedure as the UDA men were lifted by the British military at 9.23 but were only handed over to the RUC 12.10 in the morning, nearly three hours later. The RMP Corporal reports that when he went to where the prisoners were being held in Springfield Road RUC station at around about 10 to 11 that night, the intelligence officer for 2nd Battalion of the Coldstream Guards met him on arrival. This captain, quote, stated that he wished to interview each person about the offence for which they had been arrested before handover to the RUC. He further informed him that he had the permission of the Brigade Major of 39 Brigade, the Brigade in charge of the Belfast and Greater Belfast area at that time. So who was this military intelligence officer? His name is redacted in these particular files, but the British military intelligence officer with the second Coldstream Guards, although he volunteered from one Coldstream Guards, was Captain Anthony Ash Pollen. Captain Pollen was killed the following year on 14th of April 1974 by Republicans when he was captured in plain clothes at a Republican commemoration event. 
Captain Pollan is recorded by author Mark Urban and Big Voice Rules as a member of 14th Intelligence Company, which took over from the British Covert Unit Military Reaction Force. As well as information gathering and assassination, the MRF's remit included the running of Republican and Loyalist agents. It also ran British soldiers, such as Louis Hammond and Albert Ginger Baker, within both Loyalist and Republican paramilitary groups. Only the transcripts of these interviews will tell us what transpired during the few hours that Captain Ice Pollen of the British Military Intelligence interviewed former squaddy Brian Nelson and his UDA gang. But the extremely light sentences they received for torturing a man who was registered blind may tell a story of its own. Anyway, surely British military intelligence would be already aware of Brian Nelson as a potential source of information prior to this, due to his former service and his involvement in the local Loyalist paramilitary units. Payment of a war pension due to his medical discharge to his home in Cumberland Street ought to have drawn his name to the attention of the British Army stations in the area. There are serious questions to be asked, of course, whether he was deployed as an agent from the moment he officially left the Black Watch in, in the early 1970. Furthermore, court records accessed by one of our family campaigners raised serious questions regarding the IUC's investigation and the judicial process thereafter. From Nelson's confession, we learn that Mr Higgins was specifically targeted, as Nelson said they had made several passes of the area looking for a particular person until they spotted the man who fitted the description. Higgins was bundled into a car at gunpoint directly outside North Queen Street Police Station, which at that time was one of the most heavily guarded and fortified police installations in Europe. Nelson also admits that he used his own car. The use of a personal vehicle for serious crime may seem foolhardy at best, but there is a long history of this in loyalist attacks. Two of the UVF's most notorious death gangs, the Shankle Butchers and the B Company unit under Robert James Camel, the only person convicted for the McGurk's Bar Massacre, were known to use their own vehicles too for kidnapping and murder, and usually after a heavy drinking session too. The Shankle Butchers bundled and beat victims in the back of a black taxi and later a Ford Cortina, which was owned by one of them. Indeed, as I recorded in my book, The McGurk's Bar Bombing, Campbell's unit kidnapped North Belfast teenagers Kieran Murphy and drove him to his death in a Ford Corsair car owned by a member of the gang. The car we know was subsequently owned by senior UVF men, including the original owner's uncle, Kenny Heffernan, and notorious loyalist John Bingham. Nelson too, at a later stage in his British Army career, was afforded his own vehicle by the state security forces to use without impediment when gathering information on his victims. So it's little wonder why loyalist cars seem to have a laissez-passe to travel anywhere and for any crime. The loyalists were unconcerned about using their own vehicles as they feared little that they would be stopped by either British Army or police. Otherwise they would have used stolen cars. In March 1973, Nelson's gang kidnapped Higgins in Nelson's own car and drove him back to a loyalist drinking den on the Shankill Road. They rompered him or tortured him in Belfast parlance by beating him electrocuting him and setting him on fire. As UDA team under Nelson led him out to what would have been certain death, the British Army mobile patrol intercepted them and rescued Mr Higgins. Undoubtedly they saved his life and the Higgins family were eternally grateful to the soldiers. Within the court transcripts, Judge Gibson of the Court of Appeal actually says to Nelson, the car was yours, the gun was yours and I'm told, name redacted, was only informed of this at a later stage. Nelson's statement to the RU says that he was handed the gun for his own protection, but the RUC interrogator does not record asking who handed it to him or who owned it. 
The judge's words could be read as meaning that Nelson owned not just the car he used to kidnap Mr Higgins, but also the gun which was used to force the victim into the car. If this is the case, this is hugely significant of course, especially if the court is only recognising it at such a late stage in the judicial process. How could Nelson own a gun if, as his military record tells us, he was mentally unstable and discharged from the British Army because of his mental instability? I raise Nelson's potential ownership of a personal firearm and his military medical records with an R contact who was working with the British military in Belfast at this time. During the period in question, anyone in the north of Ireland who wanted to possess a firearm legally, including members of the security forces, had to apply to the chief constable and make a written submission explaining why the firearm was required. The applicant was then interviewed by members of the RUC to check the relevant facts and to judge whether the applicant was a fit person to have a firearm. If the application was approved, the firearm was submitted by the firearms dealer direct to the RUC where it was subjected to ballistics tests before the applicant could take possession of it. The ballistic report was held on file so that the weapon could be identified if it was used in any criminal, criminal activity. My contact said to me, how Brian Nelson was able to acquire a firearm certificate for a weapon bearing in mind the reasons for his medical discharge is amazing. Now if it was not Nelson's, then the IUC at least ought to have asked who owned it and recorded what its history was, especially if it could be traced through its own files. The prosecution of the three men was also a disgrace, considering their torture of Gerald Higgins and their obvious intention to kill him and dispose of his body. Nelson was convicted of a range of crimes, including carrying a firearm with intent and intimidation, and was sentenced to seven years to serve half with good behaviour. Amazingly though, charges for conspiracy to murder and grievous bodily harm with intent were dropped, even though Higgins had suffered a heart attack due to his torture and had to be rushed to intensive care where his life hung in the balance for days. Court files also record that Higgins' deposition was taken at hospital when he was critically ill and not expected to live. This record is known as a dying deposition. A special court hearing was convened in the hospital and Higgins gave his statement to the magistrate in front of the three UDA men who had kidnapped him and tortured him. Even at his appeal trial, Judge Gibson recorded that Nelson persisted in the electrocution of this man in full knowledge that he had a heart condition. Why were they not charged with far more serious crimes than they admitted to them? The police had evidence of them and they had been caught in flagrante delicto. Instead, the gang was only processed for assault occasioning actual bodily harm, which carried a far lighter sentence of up to two years. This charge was only added three days before the trial. In the end, the loyalists caught with Nelson only received two years and one year suspended for two. Nelson got the seven years, but was allegedly out by August 1977. But neither the British Ministry of Defence nor Northern Ireland Prison Service have been able to confirm to us where Brian Nelson actually served his prison sentence, if he served that prison sentence at all. These hugely significant archives also have far-reaching implications for the recent report by Sir Desmond De Silva into the murder of human rights solicitor, Pat Finucane. De Silva's report has been rightly lambasted by the Finucane family, human rights organisations and the international community. The process was instituted to give a measure of the truth whilst protecting the interests of the British elite. The revelations of Brian Nelson's mental instability and the questions raised about his convictions go to the very foundation of all that is wrong with De Silva's report and his examination of Brian Nelson, the British agent. 
The Silva opens with a curt review of Nelson's British Army career and his medical discharge, but not the reason for the discharge. Either De Silva was not told a reason for this discharge, and it should have been pertinent for him to ask a reason for it, or he was aware that Brian Nelson was discharged as he was mentally unstable, but chose not to include this highly significant information in his report. The family of Pat Finucane, of course, had no recourse to query any of these records or processes anyway. Either way, this information is highly damaging to De Silva's report, if ever there was a chance that it could be sold as a reputable, independent and comprehensive process. Nelson was the main British agent under review, so details and questions about his army career and recruitment are absolutely essential to any serious report. The fact that the report raises more questions than it answers is representative of how badly it failed as a substitute for a proper and promised inquiry. This information is also directly relevant and important to scores of families whose loved ones were murdered by loyalists as Brian Nelson not only targeted victims but also armed a new generation of paramilitary killer. In late 1987 Nelson procured arms from South Africa under the auspices of the British state during a trip funded by the taxpayer. The shipment was shadowed by British military intelligence until it was successfully split and distributed between the main loyalist paramilitary groups including Ulster Resistance, which the Democratic Unionist Party helped to form the year before. With this shipment, which included hundreds of checkmate VZ-58 assault rifles, scores of 9mm handguns, hundreds of fragmentation grenades and even RPG rocket launchers and warheads, loyalists were able to intensify their killing campaign. Relatives for Justice reported in 1995 in the six years before the arrival of the weapons from January 1982 to December 1987, Loyalist paramilitaries killed 71 people, of whom 49 were sectarian or political in nature. In the six years following from January 1988 to 1st of September 1994, Loyalists killed 229 people, of whom 207 were sectarian or political in nature. Hundreds of attacks were carried out and scores of people were murdered with these weapons. The vast majority of these were murders of Catholic civilians. Infamous atrocities executed with these weapons included the Milltown Graveyard Massacre, Sean Graham, Grey Steel and Lockin Island Massacres. During Nelson's 1982 trial, Colonel J, who we now know was Brigadier Gordon Kerr, former head of British Military Intelligence Force Research Unit or FRU, which recruited Nelson, said his agent had saved many lives. He stood behind a screen in court to protect his identity and defended him. He said, There were several occasions when targets for assassination were brought to our notice by Brian Nelson. Something like 730 reports concerning threats to 217 separate individuals, threats to life of the individual in all cases. Nevertheless, De Silva was only able to record three lives whom Nelson saved, the leader of Sinn Féin, Jerry Adams being one. De Silva notes though, that Nelson's collation and widespread dissemination of targeting material is likely to have had a broader and more deadly impact that it is difficult to quantify. As a result of De Silva's analysis of the available evidence, he was satisfied that Nelson played some part in at least four murders, ten attempted murders and numerous conspiracies to murder. At Nelson's trial in 1992, which lasted less than one day, he pled guilty to a number of charges, but the most serious were only five conspiracies to murder, as charges for four sectarian murders were dropped. Nelson was sentenced to 10 years and was out within five, we were told by the state that ran him. Again, the British state has not confirmed the name of the prison in which he served his time.
as well as his direct role in murder and the deadly impact of the intelligence he distributed to the Loyalist paramilitaries for the British military and RUC Special Branch, the British state will also have to account for its responsibility for the lethal arms that its agents shipped from South Africa. By the early 1990s, Loyalists were killing more than the IRA, but this, arguably, was the intention of the British military. Terrorise those it deemed terrorists and the community in which they lived. This accountability gap will be closed by litigation in court over the next generation and the British state will be forced to accept a greater measure of responsibility for what it used Brian Nelson to do. Whether Nelson's mental instability diminishes his own responsibility will now be open for discussion and there would be no better form than an inquiry which was promised to the Finucane family for it is obvious that De Silva's report failed and failed miserably, no doubt as it was supposed to. Until then too, the question still remains, when did Brian Nelson actually become an agent of the British state? Was it 1970, when he came back home to Belfast? Was it 1973, when he was arrested for the torture of Gerald Higgins? Or was it as late as 1984, as the British say? You can view these files on our website, www.papertrail.pro or you can check out similar discoveries in a book of collected articles and essays called Trope which I'm releasing very, very soon. In our next podcast, we investigate Britain's man in Maynooth, a man who held a very important position in the Catholic Church in Ireland, but who had very cosy relationships with a clandestine British propaganda unit. Thanks for listening.